This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. To quote Thomas Paine, These are the times that try men's souls in this crisis deserving the love and thanks of man and woman. That, of course, was a different point in our history. But today, the coronavirus is writing a new chapter, testing all Americans, our health, our jobs, our way of life. In just a moment, a conversation with author Craig Shirley. He has written a number of books on President Ronald Reagan. But for this conversation, the focus is on an op-ed he wrote for Fox News. In it, he reminds this generation that it was the greatest generation forged out of the Great Depression and World War II that made sacrifices for all of us. And two voices from that period, nearly 80 years later, remind us of that moment in our history, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. The battles that took place in Europe and across the Pacific and, of course, the sacrifices here on the home front. And that's our conversation with Craig Shirley. He's joining us from Dunsville, Virginia. His piece available at foxnews.com, what coronavirus-era Americans can learn about sacrifice from the World War II generation. What are those lessons? Well, the lessons are, uh, I guess, uh, Steve, is, is uh, is that for four years is that the American people... Uh, the citizenry went to war just like uh, the American GI did, and I get uh, you know the, the, we we went to war in the Pacific, we went to war in the African continent, we went to war in uh, Asia, we went to war in the far Pacific, we went to war in Europe, uh, but the American citizens also went to war uh, in every way you can you can imagine. Uh, they they donated, they saved, they sacrificed, they gave up. Uh, they grew victory gardens. They uh, endured heavy taxation. They endured heavy regulation. Um, they, uh, in every imaginable way, uh, the rationing of food stamps, or the rationing of food, the rationing of uh, gasoline, the rationing of oil, the rationing of milk, of of, of clothing, including baby diapers, um, the rationing of speech. In every imaginable way, the American population, the 130 million people living in the United States during World War II, made many, many sacrifices to help the uh, help help the Allies and America win uh, World War II. And you talk about your grandmothers. One was a bomb inspector. The other yeah. tested machine guns. Of course, they were called Rosie the Riveters. Here's a PSA that appeared during World War II. Good evening, America. Are you wondering what you can do to help our boys abroad? Head down to your local Department of War Labor Recruitment Office today. Women are especially encouraged. Let's hear from Rosie the Riveter. All the day long, where the rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory. Rosie, the Riveter. A catchy tune, Craig Shirley. 
good. Very good. I hadn't heard that in a while. Uh, that that is really one of the un, uh, un uh, not unwritten stories or unheralded stories, but underappreciated stories of World War II is how much women uh, went to war uh, in, B, in in nineteen in the nineteen forties during World War II. A B twenty four bomber contained over one hundred and seven thousand rivets, each one inserted by hand, and often it was a woman's hand. Uh, women went to work in the factories. They became welders. They became Arc welders. They became, uh, you know, uh, working on the assembly lines. They built. Uh, they built uh, bombers. They built. Uh, they tested machine guns, like my one grandmother did. My other grandmother was a bomb inspector. They. Um, they in every way, every imaginable way, they took to the uh, to the factories. They drove, uh, you know, tractors. They drove farm equipment. It, every job that every man ever did who is now serving in war, women stepped in to fill those jobs. Did you have the chance to talk to your parents, your grandparents, your relatives about what life was like during that period? That's how I got interested. That's, how, that's Steve, that's a great question. That's why I wrote uh, the book December 1941 and why I'm now working on a, uh, a companion book on 1945. I remember as a child, every Sunday after church, we went to my grandmother's house and there was always a you know turkey or a ham or a roast beef or something, and it was you know linen uh, lace tablecloths and linen handkerchiefs, and around the table were always grandparents and aunts and uncles, and the conversation always turned to the war, as in my grandfather would say, well I bought that Desoto before the war, but I didn't uh, uh, I didn't sell it till after the war. And they would talk with with, fond, with fondness, really, about the sacrifices they made, about how oleo butter was invented because because the cream was needed for the American GIs. So fake butter was invented, and how they had to add a dye to it to make it look more palatable because the original color was pretty uh, unappealing. Um, about the brownouts, about the blackouts, about my grandfather was a civil defense block captain. Um, about their victory gardens is that they would talk on and on and endlessly about what happened. And I would just sit there as, as a child, listen to them, just kind of mesmerized by all these things that uh, my, my family, and my family wasn't singular. All families went through this. Every family in the United States went through this and made some type of sacrifice, and in some cases made the supreme sacrifice when a member of their family died in war. Including your Uncle Barney. Yes. My uh, my father's oldest brother, uh, Ellsworth, he got the nickname Barney because there was an old uh, comic strip named Barney Google uh, in uh, and um, uh, in the Little Abner. No, not in the Little Abner. Uh, I can't remember now the name of the comic strip. But when he was born, my grand my great grandfather looked at him and says, "Well, he's got big, great big eyes, just like Barney Google." So that was his nickname, and he was a um, he he dropped out of high school to enlist when he was 17 years old. He got permission from his parents to enlist, uh, went to Pensacola for uh, radar training and radio training, and then shipped out with the uh, Pacific Fleet and was in the Pacific for uh, three, four, three years, I think. And on his 20th birthday in January of 1945, he wanted the hours to make airmen uh, first class. His rank was airmen second class. So he volunteered to go on a mission. It was a bombing mission of Japanese uh, dry docks in Saigon. And he was the radio op- operator on a TBF-1 Avenger. It was a three-man crew. And they uh, missed on the first pass, and they went around for a second pass. 
and the Japanese got triangulation and shot down. The uh, plane crashed in a park in Saigon, and he was, uh, he was, we don't know how he was killed. It was either killed one of two ways, either the crash itself or he was caught and captured by uh, Japanese later and was executed. We never got the uh, full story uh, of how he actually died. So his body never came back to the U.S.? No, it did, finally. Um, he was buried in, there in uh, what was then French Indochina and was there for several years. Then he was disinterred and, and reburied at an American military cemetery in, the, in India and was there for several years. And then he was disinterred and then finally uh, came home to, uh, to then to Sarah, Pennsylvania in the 1947-1948. Uh, uh, and finally now he's uh, buried in uh, Syracuse, New York, where he grew up. Craig Shirley, I came across this documentary by Eric Severide, who at the time worked for CBS News, titled Sacrifices and Shortages, America Goes to War. And this is how he began that documentary. The war brought full employment to America. People had money, but there wasn't much to spend it on. Japan occupied the lands that had supplied 97% of America's rubber. German U-boats prowling the Atlantic reduced sugar and coffee imports from Latin America, not to mention oil shipments from the Middle East. American factories had stopped manufacturing civilian goods like washing machines and refrigerators. All that meant shortages and rationing, a new experience for Americans, but one that made feelings of national unity and common purpose stronger than ever. And, of course, this was a moment in our history that affected every single American one way or the other. Yeah, absolutely. You know, really, there's only, Steve, there's only been two times, you know, we talk about the past unity of the United States and our cohesion and this and that. It's all really, it's all um, uh, a pipe dream. There's only really been two times in our history where we've really been unified, where everybody agreed on a certain uh, thing. We weren't unified during the American Revolution. Uh, historians will tell you as many as 30, 35 percent of the colonists were Tory sympathizers. And in fact, Benjamin Franklin's own son was imprisoned as a Tory spy. Uh, we weren't uh, unified uh, during the War of 1812. We really weren't unified during the Civil War. The Civil War was about our very divisions. Going into World War One, it took three weeks for the House to uh, vote to approve Woodrow Wilson's uh, declaration of war against Germany, and even then, some three dozen members of Congress voted against it. Um, Vietnam War was about our was about uh, our, our disunity. Um, the Gulf War, we were divided. The only two times we've ever been united as a country were beginning the afternoon of December seventh, nineteen forty one, and the afternoon of uh, September eleventh, two thousand one. We were pretty much unified for the four years following December 7th, although there, it, there were, there were, there were uh, skirmishes in those years, political skirmishes. And after, after September 11th, we were unified for only a couple months before we again broke out into uh, bitter partisanship. So we've always been divided as a country. But the, the one shining moment we were truly unified where everybody agreed except for one member of Congress, uh, we needed to go to war with the Empire of Japan, and we needed to go to war with uh, Germany and uh, Italy, was in December of 1941. Are we unified today as we battle the coronavirus? Uh, no. Um, I'm, I'm, that's a great question, too, and I'm watching it, and I'm seeing the arguments over the, uh, the bill, uh, the stimulus bill, 
and putting in things that are completely unrelated to battling coronavirus or helping the economy or things, you know, whatever, this or that. So, again, um, we are not, uh, and, and you watch on cable television, is that you don't see much in the way of unity between the two parties today. Uh, so, again, we're, we're still divided as a country. Even Donald Trump, you know, uh, is that, you know, in times of national crisis, the American people have always rallied to their president. You know, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, presidents have seen that and witnessed that in, in polling data, you know, where they get up to, you know, 85 percent approval or something like this. The, the most I've seen Trump, the approval rating, I think, has been 53 percent uh, in the days after the coronavirus uh, uh, outbreak. So, again, we're, we're not we're not unified. We're talking with Craig Shirley, his book 1941 and the companion book 1945, Looking Back at World War II. And I want you to listen to more from this Eric Severi documentary. And my question on the other side is how you think this generation would deal with the rationing that the greatest generation had to deal with back in the 1940s. Let's listen. This is the people's way of saying, from the home front to the battlefront, from movie stars to sales clerks, America's 130 million citizens are in the war. Here comes freedom, man. Can't make tomorrow's plan. Not unless you buy a share of freedom today. Any stamps, any bonds today. One way or another, almost every American became involved in the war effort. Even the children. It was part of growing up in the 40s. That from the documentary produced by Eric Severide. As you listen to that, Craig Shirley, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I, I think I would have uh, I would have enjoyed very much to live in that era. Uh, it would have been uh, it, 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 as my grandparents and parents described it, and as the books I've read and studied about. It sounds to me like a very very fascinating era, and it would have been fascinating to live and work in. Washington uh, during that time uh, with uh, Roosevelt as president, then uh, later Harry Truman. I just think that everything that was going on was people believed that they were doing something important, uh, whether it was uh, the the war or the sacrifices they were making. They believed that that it was the 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 future the the globe was in balance, and that what they were doing, what they were contributing, and even their small way was making a difference. And I think that that is a very you know enlivening uh, uh, belief. Yet even simple things like driving, you had to deal with rationing. More from that documentary. The A card. That's what most Americans got when gasoline was rationed. Four gallons a week, enough to drive about 60 miles. Newsreels tried to make carpools look like fun. They became more popular when the A card ration was cut to two gallons a week. War workers got B cards, enough gas to commute to their jobs. And then there were the unlimited X cards for emergency workers, policemen, firemen, doctors, and, so some reporter discovered, more than 200 congressmen. I didn't laugh when I heard about those members of Congress that received uh, special dispensation, but it really was a sacrifice for Americans, even going to the store or going to work. Well, you know, uh, is it parenthetically... Uh Steve, is up until the 1970s, members of Congress had their own gas station on Capitol Hill. It was well hidden behind some buildings, but they bought gas at a much cheaper rate than the rest of Americans. So American congressmen have always found times, you know, even in times of national emergency, to take care of themselves. 
But with regard to the rationing that took place in America, did Americans mind that? Was it just a way of life? What was the thinking? It was, it was a way of life. You know, I guess, you know, in, a, in an odd sort of way, the Great Depression prepared them for the sacrifices of World War II because they had already gone from, from you know, 1929 up until, up until the, the onset of World War II. They'd already been going without. Uh, they uh, they already been, you know, e- eating, you know, pretty meager rations and, and didn't have much in the way of money to afford gas or things like that. So the sacrifices uh, that they made, that they had to make during the Great Depression, there was no choice. It was, it was foisted on them. The country was at any, one, any given time, you know, going through 25, 30, 35 percent unemployment uh, and uh, dollars were scarce. So it was it kind of, in a way, it prepared them for uh, for World War II. So that I think it went down. Plus, we were much more, you know, home, you know, homogeneous society. Is that we were we were much more unified as a citizenry. We all saw the same movies and newsreels, and uh, we all pretty much thought the same way. Even even you know, liberal or you know, people didn't ter- use terms like liberals and conservatives then. Really, is that either you're a Democrat or Republican? But even they pretty much saw the world relatively the same way. In fact, to quote your piece just on those lines, the same radio shows, the same movies, as you said, the same newsreels, eating the same cereals, all attending church on Sunday or synagogue on Saturday, reading the war dispatches, all reading Ernie Pyle, of course, the famed war correspondent, adding it was a remarkable, extraordinary time. Yes, it was. It was. At least by every, every account I've ever studied, Steve, everything I've ever read, Every person I've ever talked to, my, my own parents, my grandparents, neighbors, anybody I've ever talked to is is that they have nothing but a very patriotic or warm or, 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 or you know, um, gauzy um, feelings about that. I mean, not that, not that they're sugarcoating and not that they're saying it was, it, was, it was, you know, easy times or happy times or glad times, but they all are proud of the sacrifice they, uh, they made uh, during World War II. So how can we apply that today? We have so much consumerism, so much technology. Now we have a country literally at a standstill. Shops are closed. Schools are closed. Families are under one roof. This is a very unique time in American history. How can we apply yes, the lessons of World War II today? Is to, I, I suppose is to, is to think about the group instead of the individual. Uh, is to think about other people first before you think about yourself, is to think about what you can do to help society, what you can help to do, help, you know, uh, people in your, in your community. I see stories about, um, you know, uh, people just springing up and checking in on the elderly in their homes and outbursts of patriotism um, that, have been, that have been noticed in uh, some communities and things like that. So in, in their own way, people are taking, taking charge of the world around them and trying to make the world, make society and culture a little bit better for the people around them. And so, you know, I think that, you know, you say, well, these kids today, you know, you know, but I think every, every generation goes to that. Although I do think that this society has more and has sacrificed less than say previous uh, generations. But that was said about my generation of the, of the fifties and sixties, um, you know, by the generation of the 30s and 40s. So I guess, you know, it's a, that's, that's something that's held, that's a privileged statement for every uh, succeeding generation to say about the, previ- about, the, uh, about the previous generation, about the succeeding generation. But I think that the lessons are is, is that, you know, is that you can sacrifice, that you can, you know, give back a little bit to society, 
um, and that that ultimately we're all in this together and we can all pull through this. And again, clearly this is a very different time back in the 1940s, but Americans really dealing with rations, everything from rubber, aluminum, paper, cooking grease, stockings, wine and beer. And as you point out, Americans did it with a sense of joy. And my question is, could this generation do it with that same joy? I think it's possible. You know, I think that uh, is that ultimately is that Americans have a different view of the world, a different view of, of, of how the, and their place in the world, and that, that they, they do get a sense of satisfaction out of contributing to, uh, to, to the world around them, to the society around them. It might be a little bit, you know, take a little bit more coming around for this generation, but ultimately is that that can-do spirit that's so imbued in the American character, uh, is, I think is still there today. As you mentioned, President Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, really became one of the iconic voices of that time period. Can you say the same today about President Trump, what we're seeing from the White House, his daily briefings, his updates to the American people? No, no. Uh, But it's different presidents, different men. Um, You know, I resist the idea. I know some people do this to compare. And I don't mean this necessarily as a a ding on on President Trump. It's just that he is he's wired differently than, say, Roosevelt. But Roosevelt was wired differently than Woodrow Wilson, is that these are all individuals who got to the presidency um, through their own means and through their own character, through their own determination, through their own belief system. Uh, and so, you know, he, he is he the inspirational leader? Um, but so don't forget, too, is, is that Roosevelt, through his fireside chats to the Great Depression, had already kind of had a had a, um, uh, a dress rehearsal to help lead America during World War II, uh, is that Trump hasn't had any of that dress rehearsal or that ramp-up time to, to prepare the nation or to prepare himself to lead the nation in that way, the way, uh, the way Roosevelt did. And plus, they're just, they're, you know, is that I consider Franklin Roosevelt to be one of our, our four greatest presidents alongside George Washington Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan, because these men freed or saved many, many people, um, is that it remains to be seen where Trump falls in, 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 in the rankings of the 45 presidents. Um, but these, these four were singular uh, presidents who came forward in a time of great national crisis. Well, I'm going to ask you what is, I know, an impossible question, but since you knew Ronald Reagan, you have studied him extensively, how do you think he would have handled this type of crisis? Reagan would have gone on national television immediately. Reagan knew, as did Franklin Roosevelt, as did John Kennedy, uh, as did most of our modern presidents, but also going back to Abraham Lincoln, that part of the way to get through a crisis is to talk to the American people often frequently tell them what's on your mind tell them what the problem is tell them the solution introduce it uh discuss the conflict and discuss the resolution keep the american people informed um uh ultimately the most important job of the american president is to lead the american people and that means you have to use the bully pulpit to let people know what's on your mind. Uh, and that's what Reagan would have done. And that's what John Kennedy did do. And the, and the, 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 the presidents who fail are the ones who fail to communicate to the American people, like Nixon, like Carter, like Johnson. The presidents who succeed are the ones who communicate successfully to the American people. 
like Franklin Roosevelt, like John Kennedy, uh, like Ronald Reagan. Uh, also, the, the, two, the two Bushes failed because they failed to communicate effectively to the American people. And if I was going to tell Trump anything, it would be, uh, you know, use the bully pulpit. Talk, I wouldn't use the press conference because you get bogged down into asking questions and you get, you know, off on tangents and things like that. And then the debate becomes about you versus the press. I would use speeches. I would use a teleprompter. I would use uh, radio uh, commentaries. I would use one-on-one interviews. But remember who your audience is. It's not the reporter or it's not the host. It's the American people. They're the ones who ultimately need to know what is going on and what your solutions are. We're talking with Craig Shirley. He is joining us from his home in Virginia on how Americans can learn from the World War II generation, an op-ed that's available online at foxnews.com. How have you been dealing with the coronavirus over these last couple of weeks, you personally? I've done everything that uh, uh, Zarina and I, uh, Steve, have done everything uh, that I think everybody else is doing, which is we're being very, very careful uh, with uh, we stopped going to church uh, because in fact, they closed our church because of the threat of uh, infection. Um, we've really cut down on our social life. Uh, we were planning to have some people over for dinner. We postponed those events. Uh, we've gone to uh, the grocery store several times. But, you know, everything that we pick up, we, you know, we wipe down at home, you know, with alcohol wipes and, and things like that. So we're doing everything that we're, you know, that I think that most common sense people are doing, which is we're editing our lives and we're editing our culture in, in order to protect ourselves. That's, you know, so I can't imagine, I can't, you know, think of anything else we could do other than, you know, do what uh, we have to do to protect ourselves. My analogy, though, is you're driving down the highway, say, I-66 in Virginia, going maybe 65, 70 miles an hour, and then you stop suddenly. That's basically what happened with this U.S. economy and the virus. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. And it didn't even, not even slow down. It's like you ran into a wall. You know, you got to put the car back together and pull yourself back together and, and, and repair it and uh, repair yourself and, and get everything going again. It's a very, very difficult you know, proposition. You know, uh, I think st- starting an economy is very, very difficult. Starting it up is even more difficult. This, too, of course, will pass at some point. What will the other side look like? That's a great question. Um, I would like to say we'll, we'll come out of it as a, as a better uh, society. Uh, but I think back to 9-11, Steve, and um, whereas... American culture and society came out of World War II, uh, a, a better society and a better culture. We had a better relate. We had a better outlook on uh, civil rights. We had a better outlook on uh, women's rights. We had we had a more expansive view of the world that we weren't isolationists. That we weren't, weren't walled off by two oceans. That we had a duty and obligation to the people of the world. And that's when we started helping the people of the world, feeding the people of the world, teaching the people of the world. We came out of World War II, I think, a, a better country. Uh, but then we came out of 9-11 but pretty much the same as we went before 9-11. You know, bitty, bitter, partisan fights, um, often, often petty, picayune, and we didn't really improve. I mean, we improved our security, but I don't think we improved our souls. Um, I don't know yet how we're going to come out of this on the other side, but I fear it's going to be more like 9-11 than it is going to be like December 
1941 or the World War II generation. When does your book 1945 come out, Craig Shirley? Uh, it's due out in uh, December of this year, um, the 75th anniversary of the year 1945. We look forward to your book, and we appreciate your perspective. Craig Shirley, author, presidential historian, his piece available at foxnews.com. Stay safe. We thank you for being with us. Thank you, Steve, very, very much. And a reminder, you can find The Weekly on our website at cspan.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And after you listen, be sure to rate and review us. We look forward to your comments and feedback.